This is good old boy Mike from Sips, Suds, and Smokes podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 176, The Cannonball Run Movie Review. Welcome to the show. I'm Chris McBrien, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Derek Myers, caveman. How are you, my friend? Doing well, Chris. Doing real well. How are you this week? Oh, man, I can't complain. Well, you know, nobody would listen if I did anyway. So we're not, <laughs> we're not here for that. We're here for pop culture. So have you usually have a bit more, I don't want to say you have more free time than I do, but, you know, you always have more pop culture stuff because I just keep watching the same things over and over again. So uh, what have you done this week, pop culture wise, that's new? I mean, educate me. What's what's out there that I'm missing out on, man? All right. Okay. I got a few things for you and these are all older things. So there's no excuse as to why you are not familiar with these or have maybe not seen these. In fact, I kind of be shocked if you haven't seen them, but uh, I got a few. And of course, we'll have a documentary because I didn't have one last week. So I had I felt I had a little homework to make up for. So, okay, first, don't want to talk about this at great length. Just want to acknowledge the movie at American Werewolf in London was on TV last night. So I I ended up having to give up two hours of my life to watch it again, the original. And it's great. It holds up real well. We'll have to do that on a future podcast. And I know you enjoy that movie. So I just wanted to throw that out there to start with. I'm in love with Jenny Aguder in that movie. That that movie is really good. The special effects are good. It's. It's, I don't want to say it's campy, but it's almost like over the top satirical in a way. Oh, that, that's a, that's a good one. Yeah, we have. It's to really good. And yeah. and I love the, yeah. the soundtrack that it's all the different songs that have the word moon in it. Mm-hmm. And like, they're all sort of different genres and styles and they're all great songs. So I just, there's, there's a lot to like about that movie. So it was sort of like a guilty pleasure kind of movie. I saw it come on. I thought I should probably go to bed soon. I'm like, oh, I, I better watch this. So yeah, that was, that was the first one. Um, so uh, we, my wife and I decided the other night we wanted to watch something, uh, and we had a hard time a few nights earlier picking something to watch. We cycled through Amazon. We cycled through Netflix. We cycled through Disney and we couldn't agree on something to watch. We we're like, this is the equivalent of walking through the video store on a Friday night, trying to find a movie. Like we probably spent a good 30 minutes just cycling through all the titles and either saying, nah, I've seen that. Nah, I don't feel like seeing that. Mm, maybe not, not right now, but in future. So then a couple of nights after that, we said, you know, let's not do that again. Let's just make a short list and pick something. And she said, well, I have about 20 or 30 movies saved in my recorder. Let's watch something. Fine. We ended up picking the Alfred, Hitch- Alfred Hitchcock classic from 1964, Marnie, starring oh, nice. Tippi Hedren and yes. Sean Connery. Nice. Neither one of us had ever seen it. I had never even heard of it. Wow. Uh, and so we're like, okay. We don't know anything about it other than the cast and that it's Alfred Hitchcock. And and my wife, Kay, was like, oh, I heard it's really good. That's why I recorded it. 
So we went into it not knowing anything about it, and we both loved it. It was great. Have you seen it? I have. It's It's been a long time, but it's very, very good. It is very, very good. And it's it's almost like... It's almost like two movies, like at about the midway point, there's like a big reveal and the, the movie sort of shifts gears and it becomes almost a different kind of movie, but in a good way. And uh, yeah, it, we really enjoy it. Again, we won't go into it too much here, but if if you're uh, if you're into movies and if you're into Hitchcock and you haven't seen Marnie, it, it was good. Uh, I mean, the acting style from that that decade is very different than the acting styles of today. And I find sometimes that throws me a bit, but the, uh, the story was great. The direction was great. You really, you take for granted how good some directors are. Mm-hmm. And you just sort of take for granted, like when you watch TV and you watch a lot of modern movies, like things just happen in a certain way. And then you watch a film by an actual awesome director like Hitchcock. And you really notice what he brings to the table. Like it was, it was completely obvious to me that the director of this movie was was not of the same caliber as the normal director like just the way things were shot and things like that yeah it it was really really good it really held up 1964 marnie give it a look nice all right and then uh so i I have a documentary for you for 40 days and 40 nights watch documentaries he likes to learn about the world it's derek's documentaries derek's documentaries before you get into your documentary, I wanted to mention something. Okay, go, go. I had a guest lecturer join me in one of my online classes this week, and he mentioned a documentary that I just got to see, and, and maybe you've heard of it. It's called Making Fun, and it's the story of Funko. You know those little figures? Oh, the Funko with the big, Pop the yeah. action figures? Yeah, it's, I've it's seen the, it. It's the two great. guys that... I guess they founded this company and, you know, kind of how they got it off the ground and everything, making fun. Apparently it's on uh, Netflix. So, yeah, it's really good. I I watched it when it first came out. Uh, One of my really good friends is a a Funko Pop collector fanatic. He has every Batman that's ever been put out by Funko. And I think he's up to 350 already. It's it's an obsession with this guy. So, you know, which one I want. I want I want the Fonz. Nice. So if if anyone out there knows if the Fonz is available in Funko, let me know or if you could even send me one, I'll uh, I'll send you some ketchup chips from Canada. So we'll make nice. a trade. Uh, I find so- the thing with the Funko Pops is they mm-hmm. tend to uh, release uh, release things in waves, and they they only produce a certain number of figures over a certain period of time, and then that's it. They're never available again, and that's part of what makes them collectible. Is that version of that thing is just it's a one and done, and if you miss it then you start paying the premium collector price. Now for some things like Batman, there's always a new Batman coming out. So you'll never have a problem finding quote, ah, Batman. But if you want, you know, the Adam West Batman, for example, from the 1960s television show, well, that's come and gone. If that's the one you want, too bad, go to the collector market. So your Fonzie one I'm sure is out there. It's just a matter of how old is it and whether or not they've done a reissue anytime recently. So good luck. I'll keep my eyes open for you. Yeah, please do. All right. So so documentary. Yeah. when, when you say to someone, I've watched documentary or I'm going to tell you about a documentary, I think most people, the very first thing that comes to mind when you say documentary, they will generally think of something like National Geographic. They'll think of like a nature documentary mm-hmm. about wildlife or the outdoors or, or sure. something along those lines. I know for me, for the longest time, when someone said documentary, that's immediately where my mind went. Now, obviously, as we talk about almost every week on this show, documentaries can be about just about any topic, but I think the classical 
idea of what what a documentary is about is most times people are going to gravitate towards that nature thing. And so the one I'm going to talk about, it's actually two. There are series that I'm talking about today is in that classic vein. And it's called Alone in the Wilderness. It's apparently uh, a classic. It's 20 years old. Have you ever heard of a documentary series called Alone in the Wilderness? No, never. Does does the name uh, Dick Pernecki mean anything to you? No. Okay, so uh, this series, there's, there's two of them. There was the original Alone in the Wilderness, and then there was Alone in the Wilderness Part 2. They both feature a, a gentleman named Dick Pernecki. He, I, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. So in the, um, in the I want to say it was the late 70s, early 60s, it was, yeah, in 1968, um, this gentleman was 53 years old, and he was from California, and he had lived a full life, and he decided that, uh, you know, he was going to uh, take his love for nature and, and his survivalist skills, and he moved to Alaska, a place called Twin Lakes in Alaska, and decided, I'm getting away from it all. He went up there, uh, he had someone fly him up there in a small plane with a handful of supplies and a handful of tools, and... From nothing, he just lived off the land. He built himself a little log cabin, and he hunted and gathered for his own, for his food. And you know, he it, it was this documentary. And he's a filmmaker and a photographer himself, so he documented everything. Which, considering this happened in 1968, the level of documentation and the quality of it was fantastic. And it's just a series of how this guy literally makes all these things he, like he made the log cabin he made the tables the chairs the the bowls the spoons the stools like everything that he needed for this cabin he literally made from the materials that he found in nature around him he used like um this this really thick moss for like his roof of his cabin to retain the heat you, you saw him build like his own fireplace it was like it, just the skills it took to do this, I was fascinated. I couldn't couldn't look away. It was it was riveting how how skilled this guy was with his tools to be able to build these kinds of things to the level of quality that you that you saw in the film. And apparently, he lived out there for the next thirty years of his life, almost completely devoid of any contact with anybody else. He had occasionally, I think it was once every couple of months, a little prop plane would come in and bring him supplies and bring him mail. And he would like, because he was writing and documenting everything, he would, he had like cans of old film and journals and he would give those to the person that, that came in and that, that guy would get them all developed and stuff. And then in the, um, I think it was in the late seventies after he'd been there about 10 years, they put out this documentary and uh, it was a big hit with PBS. And then, uh, which is where I saw it this week. And then about a decade later, they did a part two, which was just the follow-up of, okay, here's what he's done, you know, in the years since then. And uh, apparently he has like this huge, huge following of like nature and survivalist people. Like they hold him up in the highest regard just because of the, um, the skills that he had and the fact that he documented so much of it at a time when people weren't doing that and weren't documenting it. And uh, he put out a bunch of books of his of his photographs. And I got to think that's sort of what helped pay for, uh, you know, some of the costs that were involved around getting the supplies to him. But um, when he when he uh, eventually died in, uh, I want to say it was the where did it say died in 2003, um, he bequeathed his his cabin and all of that stuff to the state of Alaska. And it's part of a national park now. And you can actually go and visit it. And after I watched these two, they're two one hour documentaries after I watched them. Like I wanted to read up on this guy. I was just, it was fascinating. So 
If that sounds like that's the documentary that might be up your alley, I strongly encourage you to check it out. It's called Alone in the Wilderness, Part 1 and 2. I watched them on PBS. They were selling the video, so I got to think they're available out there somewhere. The gentleman's name, Dick Pernecki, and uh, yeah, I, I was reading reviews of it, and like people were saying, I watch this with my kids, and I watch this with my with my elderly parents. Like, It's just something about, the, something about watching this guy create this lifestyle out of nothing is just so riveting and fascinating to watch. And I guess given that we've all been living in isolation because of the coronavirus for the last year, mm -hmm. it's interesting to see how this guy did it in a, in a circumstance where he wasn't required to do it, but he had this incredible skill set that just let him thrive. So yeah, it's fascinating. You like watching documentaries. That's I do. Sure. I love it. I, uh, I like watching, I like binge watching shows with my wife. It's just something we do. And I just recently finished, uh, up, the sons of anarchy we finally oh, right. got through it i didn't like it i thought it sucked um i was ready to bail on back in like season one and my wife kept saying just give it a chance you know it's gonna get good you know and then i think it finally just got to the point where she says well you know we've come this far <laughs> you know we might as well just finish it you know derek between me and you i think she just stuck around because they kept showing charlie hunnam's butt yeah. that's what I think but anyway so we got done and we thought well we got to watch another show so she had one she wanted us to watch called The Imposters and I hated it and then we tried watching Dark the one that you recommended and yeah. it was good but I found it was just like a, a German version of Stranger Things so uh, yeah. I wasn't all that big on it so <clears throat> I just ended up watching Three's Company on Deja View oh my god of course you did <clears throat> because they're into the episodes where Terry joined so that's all I've been doing is watching that. I'm just, I'm lame. <laughs> I just do the same things over and over again. And, uh, and since I'm lame, here's your dad joke of the week. All right. Since we're doing the cannibal run this week, I thought we would do something involving race cars for a joke. Okay. Okay. Race car forward spells race car. Race car backward spells race car. What happens when you put it sideways? I have no idea. It, it kills Paul Walker. Oh, jeez. Oh, man, I'm going to hell. Not cool, man. Star Trek could always see into the future, couldn't they? What do you have that we could slap Star Trek logos onto? Shatner's hair. The toys that made us. The TJ Hooker hair. TJ Hooker. I could have auxiliary power back in a few minutes. Yeah, no, I, I, I really like it. Con! Why don't I give you a quick scan to make sure you're okay? Kirk got around a little bit. Go. Do you need a tranquilizer? Oh, my God. All right, Derek. <clears throat> it was over to me this week. I got to nominate a film, <clears throat> and I went with the 1981 sort of ensemble cast film, The Cannonball Run. Um, first of all, before we get into it, you cannot find this movie anywhere. It's not on Netflix. It's not on Amazon Prime. Even the on-demand movie services that our local cable provides, you, you can't find it. So HBO owns the non-theatrical rights to this movie. So I don't know, maybe if you've got HBO Max or whatever it's called, maybe you can get it there. But in Canada, we have something called Crave. And Crave has the rights to distribute most of HBO's properties, but it's not on there either. Um, Warner Brothers owns the rights to the sequel. So you can get that one on Netflix, but not the original. But lucky for me, Derek, back in the day, I used to love this movie. And a mutual friend of ours, 
gave me a, a copy of this movie years ago on DVD. Um, and when I worked at Ontario Place back when I was younger, a bunch of us used to always get together and we'd have movie nights. And this was one of the ones we'd watch regularly. But uh, these days, with all the streaming that's available, I don't even have a DVD player that's hooked up in my house, believe it or not. So I had to bust out my DVD player and then set it up in the TV in the living room. Uh, Derek, did you have any issues finding this movie to watch? Oh, I, I had such a hard time. So exactly like you said, I went online, couldn't find it. Checked all the streaming services, couldn't find it. Went to Amazon Canada. Oh, yeah, the Blu-ray was available for like 30 or 40 bucks. And I thought, I don't know if I'm going to like the movie that much. I don't feel like I want to own it. And then I managed to find a used copy of the DVD for like 6 or $7. But the shipping was going to be more than that. And they wanted like six to eight weeks to send me the movie. So, yeah, I, I was sort of at a loss. I, I almost had to reach out to you and say, Chris, as much as I, I am genuinely interested in watching this movie, I cannot find a copy of it. We're going to have to do something else. And then someone suggested, why don't you try your public library? I thought that's a great idea. So I, I went online and I typed in public library and sure enough, they have tons of copies. I'm like, that's great. I called them up. Hey, are you open? Because with COVID protocols, things are locked down. They're like, just like a store, you just order online, you come pick it up, you're done. I'm like, that's great, uh, but you need to have a library card. Oh, I have one of those. Oh, when was the last time you used it? Oh, it's been a while. Well, I learned that library cards, cards in the great city of Toronto expire after two years. So my library card had long ago expired. And I said, well, how do I renew it? Oh, no problem. Once the libraries open up, come on in and we'll get you a new card. Doesn't really help my problem now. So... I was sort of at a loss. I called a few of my friends. Hey, anyone got a library card? Anyone got a library card? Someone go and rent me this movie. And no, I couldn't. I'd had no luck. So finally, as just sort of a last stab in the dark, I have a buddy who has an extensive digital movie library. We won't talk about how he has acquired this, but he has a lot of digital movies. And on a whim, I just thought I'll reach out to this guy. He's sometimes a little tough to get a response from because he's got two really young kids right now. And as fortune had it, I messaged him. I was like, any chance you got Cannonball Run? Five minutes later, I get a response. Yeah, I have Cannonball Run 1, 2, and 3. What do you need? I'm like, wow, they made three of those? They made uh, I three? Said, they made, apparently, I, they made three. I know one and two. I never heard of them. Three. Gosh. I don't know. And, and then, he's got uh, it. <laughs> apparently, he's got it. So I said, well, this, I told him what was going on. I'm like, look, I can drive over to your house. You just put on a little digital stick, and I'll get He's like, no, no, no. We figured out a way for him to transfer the movie to me. So nice. I did finally manage to get a copy of this. Uh, my fear was that uh, some of our listeners, maybe who have never seen it or haven't seen it in a long time, are going to have a hard time following along mm -hmm. with the podcast because they haven't been able to watch it either. So I hope if people are sticking around that uh, they get enough out of this, that even if they haven't seen the movie in a while, they they still have fun listening to our, our banter. Well, yeah, we get to be nostalgic around here. And go by. Um, so I put the movie on and my wife made it through about ah, 15 minutes. And then she was like, this movie's stupid. I'm going to bed. And then she says, and by the way, you need to find a new hobby. This podcast is killing me. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So, Cannonball Run is directed by Hal Needham, former stuntman Hal Needham. Uh, it was released on June the 19th, 1981. It had a budget of $16 million. It made 10 times that much at the domestic box office in the U.S. Um, taking a look at the box office from 81. Good year. Good year for movies back then. Raiders yeah, really of the Lost cool. Ark, number one. It doubled the next film, which was on Golden Pond. Uh, Superman 2 was third, and Arthur, that's a good movie, uh, Stripes, 
Oh, what? You thought it was terrible? Oh, we, yeah. we, we definitely have to do Arthur on an upcoming We day. did Arthur, didn't we? No, we didn't. I no. was sure we did Arthur already no. on one no, of our we old podcasts. Uh, uh, we, I'm, I'm, I'm calling your bluff on that one. We totally did. Well, I'll have to go back through the archives and check, but I'm sure See, we it was done. so bad that even you don't remember it. So no, that, that right. movie was good. Uh, Stripes, which was fantastic, and Cannibal Run, which was number six, followed up by Chariots of Fire, For Your Eyes Only, Four Seasons, and Clash of the Titans. Got a lot of good movies. But that was 1981. It's been 40 years since its release. A lot has changed in the world since then. And I'm pretty sure, it, you know, uh, it's pretty safe to say that the changes in society um, are clearly reflected when you go back and watch this movie. Um, Derek, we obviously have a lot of fun. We get to go back in time. We get to watch these Gen X movies. You know, I, I look forward to this every week. Um, so what are your thoughts? I, I think... Let's just start with your general thoughts, and then I think I'd like to kick things off with some of the problematic areas of the film, to say the least. So, so what are your general thoughts? You, you, you finally found the movie, you know, after after a lot of searching, and you watched it. Uh, initial thoughts after 40 years. All right. So I, I had seen the Cannonball Run before, probably in the mid-80s on home video. I think I remember seeing it probably one time. I don't remember or I didn't remember a lot of the I'm like I know the broad strokes I know what it's about I remembered certain little bits and pieces here and there but again when I watched it for the first time I was probably like 10 or 11 years old so a lot of the humor a lot of the subtlety a lot of the sexual innuendo would have gone right over my head so it was almost like coming to the movie for the very first time and and seeing it that way and let me tell you I loved it Ooh, I wow. loved it wow. I, I I thought that Despite a handful of issues, it held up very well in my mind for what it was. The idea of this wacky ensemble of of characters that are racing across the U.S. for a cash prize. Just the concept of it is so simple and so crazy. And I think it worked so well and it allowed so many performers to just highlight what they're good at in ways that it could still contribute to this ensemble film. I loved it. There was so much to like about this movie, and I honestly can't wait to watch it again in a few weeks. Um, I, I enjoyed it that much. I'm really looking forward to a rewatch, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to encourage some other people. I'll maybe sit down, and get my wife to watch it again with me. But yeah, no, I really really enjoyed it. This is gonna be an interesting podcast because usually, like, I'm the old guy. I like to go back and watch these movies. I don't think they've aged at all, and I'm like, you know, get off my lawn if you don't like this stuff. But this one, I'll be honest, like, I mean, I really liked the Cannonball Run when I was younger. Like I say, we used to have these movie nights. I'd watch it over and over again. But watching it this time around, I don't know. For whatever reason, I, I, I mean, I enjoyed it. And there's multiple times where I laughed, like, out loud. But there's quite a few problematic areas in this movie. I'll be the first to admit. Some of the misogyny and the sexism. I mean, Farrah Fawcett, they basically kidnap and drug her. Yeah. And the, the scene when Burt Reynolds first sees her in the bar, that scene does not star Farrah Fawcett. It stars Farrah Fawcett's nipples. Yes. Oh, my. Oh, and speaking of which, Adrienne Barbeau, her acting in this movie basically consists of her unzipping her outfit. And let me tell you, that wasn't the only time that cleavage is prominently featured in this movie. If you even go to the IMDb page, for this movie. And if you look, you know how they have an images section? 
Yes. Go there. Five of the first six pictures feature boobs. Like, oh, you're absolutely right. I have it open here right now. Yeah, you're absolutely it, right. There's like Adrian Barbeau, the girl that's sitting beside her in the Lamborghini, the waitress at the diner that yeah. Jamie Farr pulls up to, Farrah Fawcett's, you know, brawless nipples, um, Seymour's bevy of girlfriends, and even the female cop that pulls over Adrian Barbeau, she leans into the car and you can see her cleavage. They should have just called this movie the Canon Boobs Run, for crying out loud. So... Just, just, I was just almost taken aback by that. And I'm usually not. But this week, when I watched this, I was like, holy smokes. I just couldn't believe it. So that was one area that I thought was a bit problematic. The other one was the way the film deals with race. So you got Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin, two of the best people in this movie, by the way, which we'll get to. And they're dressed up as priests in a Ferrari. And they pull up alongside the ambulance. Remember when they, they want Burt yeah. Reynolds to pull over so they can bless yeah. the ambulance? So we can bless you. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. And, then, and Dom DeLuise wants to pull over. And Burt Reynolds is like, those two are priests? One of them is black. Yeah. He's like, it's like as if you can't be black and be a priest. And, and Dom DeLuise is like, oh, yeah, no, they've got black priests now. They've got those now, I think is yeah. what he said or something. Yeah. And, and Burt Reynolds, like, you want me to pull over for a black priest in a red Ferrari? And then later in the movie, Burt Reynolds calls him the chocolate monk for Christmas. Yes. Like, like, I mean, so there's there's definitely some problematic. <laughs> did, like, did you not find that? You're usually the one that's a bit more of a, you know, sensitive to these kind of things. Did, did you find anything kind of problematic with the film overall? Oh, I mean, yeah, believe me. this, this movie has issues, especially as we often say, when you hold it up to today's lens, there's a lot of problems in it from that perspective. And I think the the, the defense, we'll, we'll call it small D defense, not that it's a really a defense, but is it's a product of its time. And it's not to say that these things were right in the in the time they were done, but they were not called out as being problematic. So things like the object objectification of the women. There's a lot of racial stuff that goes on in here. Um, um, as, as you've already mentioned a couple of uh, examples and there's certainly a few more, which I'm sure we'll get into. But again, for, for me, I'm sort of watching this through the lens of the broader story and the ensemble comedy. And the thing with like, with um, Dean Martin and Sammy Davis, like if you go back to a lot of their uh, performances, like their stand up performances and their live shows, there's a ton of racism in that. And the guys are always making fun of Sammy Davis for being Jewish and for being black. And that's not to say that it was right, but part of the part of the 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 sketch was that his character Sammy Davis on on stage always seemed to be accepting of it as, well, that's the point. It's like when you're when you got a thin guy and a fat guy and the jokes are all about the fat guy at his expense, and he's sort of like, Yeah, that's my joke, is I'm the fat guy, make fun of me. It's almost like for Sammy Davis, a lot of the banter between him and the rest of the Rat Pack, when they were then they were making fun of him, that's a lot of what they made fun of. He's short, he's black, he's Jewish. So it's like, again, not to say that it was right, but it was almost it was like he accepted it, or at least on stage, he pretended to accept it. And so knowing that was sort of part of the shtick of these two guys, that was sort of the lens I watched it through was the, here are two guys that I know have a long history together. And and this is just part of the part of the banter that they they tend to have. Again, not to excuse it, but mm -hmm. yeah. 
So the movie opens up. Let's get into this movie. And yes, let's. Um, you know it's going to be goofy right off the top because it opens with the animated car chase around the yes. 20th Century Fox yes. logo, which I thought was funny. And then the movie opens up with the two girls in the spandex bodysuits driving the Lamborghini, and they pull up to the speed limit sign, and they use spray paint to cross out the 55 mile per hour limit. And this is actually important because this is the concept of the real life race that this movie is based on. So there was this race, it was actually called the Cannonball Baker Sea to Shining Sea Memorial Trophy Dash. And it was created by this race car driver and this writer, Brock Yates. And he did it to protest the 55 mile per hour speed limit, which was the norm, you know, at the time, probably still is, I guess. I mean, but um, he wanted to protest the speed limit because, you know, of course, Derek, there's nothing more American than thinking rules are some sort of infringement on your rights. So he came up with this idea for people to race across the country, starting in either New York or in Connecticut and going all the way to Redondo Beach, California. Now, let's talk a little bit about uh, the director. I mentioned him, Hal Needham. He was a former stuntman. Um, actually, he was one of the most successful stuntmen in Hollywood history. Any guess how many television episodes that he actually worked on? Take a guess. T television? Yeah. Like how? I don't know. Thirty. Mm, a little bit higher. Forty. More. Fifty. Forty-five hundred television wow. episodes and three hundred and ten films in his career. This is a prolific prolific stuntman he actually doubled for burt reynolds in gator in 1976 and they became friends and then he got a chance to direct and he made one hell of a splash when he made Smokey and the bandit which we covered you know on on this show and um he directed 10 movies in total six of them with burt reynolds they made quite the team you know there for a while from 78 to 1982 burt reynolds was the highest grossing actor in the world yeah, absolutely. Now, a lot of that was due to his work with Hal Needham, right? And I think it's easy to forget how popular these guys were, you know, back in the day. Um, you could argue that Needham's movies with Burt Reynolds got progressively worse you know, as the years went on. Smokey and the Bandit was great. Like I say, we reviewed that, you know, on this uh, back on like 144 on this episode or this podcast. Um but then he went on to direct Reynolds in Hooper in 78, Smoking the Bandit 2 in 80, The Cannibal Run, this one in 80, 81, um, Stroker Ace, a personal favorite, Derek, back in Never seen it. I liked it. Oh, God, we got to do that one. And then The Cannibal Run 2 in 84. Now, I actually saw four of those movies in the theater when they were originally released. Have I mentioned that I'm old, Derek? <laughs> uh, a few times, yeah. In fact, I, I, I'm the OG. I wrote a song about that in case you missed it last week. Oh, I'm not going to play it again it. right no, now. No, no, okay. no, 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 I'm not. Um, so what do you think about the cast? Let's talk about the cast, shall okay, we? Okay, so huge cast. Yeah. Um, I, again, I, I didn't really remember this movie very well. I just knew it had this huge cast. I knew Burt Reynolds was in it. I knew Ferry Foss. Like, basically, I remembered a lot of the Burt Reynolds stuff, like with the ambulance. So I knew it was Burt Reynolds, mm -hmm. Farrah Fawcett, Dom DeLuise. Of course. Um, I, I remembered Adrian Barbeau, or at least part of her. Uh, and... <laughs> And that was pretty much it. I knew yeah. there was a lot of other people, but I didn't know who. I, I had no idea that Roger Moore was in this until I started watching it. Yeah. And then you see Dean Martin and Sammy Davis. You're like, okay. Uh, I, and then Terry Bradshaw shows up. I'm like, hey, it's Terry Bradshaw. <laughs> Jackie Chan. 
Bert yeah. Convy, I recognize right away because I watch the Password Game Show all the oh, time. Yeah. Uh, Jamie else. Farr playing an Arabian Sheik, which was wow, super racist. <laughs> um, yeah, thank. And uh, and I love like they have Jackie Chan playing a Chinese, uh, a Japanese guy, but he's Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, a little racist there. Um, Peter Fonda shows up later in the movie for a small part. It's just like. Wow, this this movie has a lot of people, and I'm sure there's a few others that I just didn't recognize that were probably big in the 60s and 70s. It almost seemed like it was this opportunity for, and I'm sure this happens in Hollywood a lot, where they knew they were going to make an ensemble. They had a handful of people that were, you know, in charge of the money and the casting, and they went, I always want to work with this guy. Let's bring him on the movie. Or, hey, you know who's good to fun to work with? These guys. Get Why don't we invite him on? And then, hey, you know who who we who these guys enjoy working with? These other guys. Um and I just got the sense that that was how this movie came together was a lot of a lot of that in-house camaraderie of who's your friend, who have you worked with before, um, who's fun to have on set. Uh, like, again, I, I have no idea if that's actually how this movie came together, but I got the impression that's how this movie came together. And for me, I, I, I felt that as I'm watching it and a lot of these people are not in scenes with any of these other cast members. And that's mm-hmm. I think that might be part of what I liked about it was. Um, you have this huge ensemble and you don't really spend a lot of time with really any of them, except for Burt Reynolds. Like, obviously he's the star of this movie and he probably has the most screen time, like the Dom DeLuise, Burt Reynolds portion of it. But all these other people are like, they have their bits and pieces and you're constantly jumping back and forth between the characters. And I think that's part of what kept my attention was every time they would go to a different character, I would want to think, who are they going to go to next? And what are these other characters doing while these characters are getting up to whatever craziness they're happy to get up to. So no, I, I, I'm, uh, I really liked it. The, no, so, I thought the casting was great. So let's talk about Burt Reynolds for a second. I think sure. he gets pigeonholed into these Hal Needham movies and he's mostly remembered for them. And I guess rightly so. But the thing I think that gets lost in a lot of this is just how good of an actor that he actually was. And if, if you don't believe me, go back and watch, you know, the longest yard or Sharky's machine or deliverance and even if you look a little bit later in his career, there was this little movie that came out in 89. It was called Breaking In with Casey Zamasco. And Reynolds played this like aging bank robber. And he was teaching the, the tools of the trade to this young guy. And it was so good. And then, of course, Boogie Nights. You know, of course, yeah. Received his only Oscar nomination for that. And, you know, we always talk about this. You know, the, the Academy usually likes to give awards to people like him you know, as, as, as a reward for their body of work, but it just wasn't meant to be for Reynolds that year, because unfortunately another veteran actor was rewarded for his body of work. And that was Robin Williams when he was in Goodwill hunting. And cause he had been nominated previously for good morning, Vietnam. He lost out to Michael Douglas in wall street, rightly so, I guess. Um, but even though Reynolds never got his Oscar, you know, he was a really, really good actor. And I I don't think he ever really got his due. But some of it was his own fault, <laughs> you know, because in a lot of these Hal Needham movies, he basically just played a caricature of himself. Yeah, he played himself. Yeah. yeah. Or you at know? least he played what people believed he was. And, right. and I think that's an important distinction. And I got to think, again, I don't know, but I got to think that these characters were pretty close to him in real life. Um, or at least... I think that's what most people thought. So whether or not that was true, I think he understood the value of it. This is what people expect of me. I can make a lot of money being this person, assuming he wasn't already that person, in which case it would have made that job even easier. 
that wasn't, I, I, I think you could argue that wasn't the biggest mistake that he made in his career, you know, just playing himself. His biggest mistake he made was in 1983. He was actually offered Jack Nicholson's role in terms of endearment. Well, I heard that. Yeah. And he turned it down. Turned he, it down. Felt, he felt it was too small of a role for him. And instead he decided to do Stroke Race and Stroke Race bombed and Jack Nicholson won the Oscar for his yeah. part. And really, Burt Reynolds' career took a nosedive and it never, never really, really recovered after that. Um, you mentioned Dom DeLuise. I want to touch base on him for a second. You could argue that he probably wouldn't even have an acting career if it wasn't for Burt Reynolds. That's fair. I mean, he did have a lot of cameos in Mel Brooks movies. Remember, he was in History of the World Part One. Yep. Yep. And Blazing Saddles, Silent Movie, Spaceballs, you know. Um, but he was he played the lead role in a movie the hell was the name, but I think it was called Fatso. But um after yeah, there, he, there's a politically correct title for it. Yeah, you. exactly. Well, it was it was the you know eighties, right? But he was in this movie called The End with Burt Reynolds, and they just became friends. And then Reynolds put him in the Cannonball Run and Smoking the Bandit 2. And then he really got into a lot of voice work with Don Bluth, you know, animated films in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. I looked up his IMDb like that's he that's what he's been doing the last 20 years. A lot of voice work. I think you can argue that he's probably best known for the blooper reels at the end of Cannonball Run. You know, yeah, so for sure. So I have a question. Dom DeLuise, are you a fan? Yay or nay? Of him in general? Yeah. I mean, I was certainly a fan of what he did in this movie. Mm hmm. I, I, Again, I think I, I personally I find for me a lot of great comedic setups, a lot of great uh, a lot of uh, humorous situations and and funny scenes on TV and movies generally work better with a pair. And we found that with the, with podcasting, right? No one wants to listen to one guy drone on for an hour. Sorry, that's usually me. Um, <laughs> but when you can bounce ideas back and forth, especially with, with when you have a, a comedic duo that have that timing and that relationship and they can banter off each other and they, you know, that's usually where you, where you strike gold. And I find that the combo of Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise together, like you can just tell these are two guys that enjoy each other's company, that get each other's sense of humor and they just play off each other so well. And you laugh at the fact that they're laughing at each other with you. And, and that's, that's why, that's sort of why I like Dom DeLuise. I don't think I would care for him so much on his own, but seeing him in an opportunity to see him together with Burt Reynolds, that to me is a good time. Yeah. That, that's a good point because he really was a good compliment for Burt mm -hmm. Reynolds. Cause if you think about it, Burt Reynolds, this macho good looking guy and Dom's, you know, overweight, he's, he's slightly effeminate, you know, um, Bert could kind of come off as a bit of a jerk, but Dom was like this kind spirit, you know, mm -hmm. they, they, they worked really well together. You're right. I know I mentioned the movie, the end. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's, it's from no. 1978 and it deals with suicide and touchy subject at the time, you know, a touchy subject anytime, but especially yeah, no I guess in 78, but it was actually really, really good. And then after Smokey and the Bandit became this, you know, huge success, the studio wanted Reynolds to do Hooper, you know, this movie. And he agreed. And he said, I'll do it, but I'll do it on one condition. That, you know, they allowed him to star in a script about suicide. You know, this movie, The End. 
and it was released in 78. It was, they made it, it was a small movie. They made it for like $3 million, but it made like 45 million at the box office. And it formed like a lifelong friendship between Reynolds and DeLuise. So, um, Sammy Davis Jr., you, you mentioned. He is, hands down, my favorite actor in this movie. I love Sammy Davis Jr. There's, I don't know, there's just something about him. I absolutely love him. He has the best lines in this movie. I think he's in the best scenes in this movie, which we'll come back to. I want to come, we'll talk about uh, some of the other cast, but I want to come back to some of our favorite scenes because he's definitely in them. And he was, the guy was in the original Rat Pack for crying out loud. Like, and he's in this, it's so good. Um, Adrian Barbeau, she was in Maud. You mentioned a couple weeks ago we were talking about her. You mentioned she was in Swamp Thing. Yeah. Which I had forgot about until you mentioned it. She was in Creep Show. And um, she was in an episode of Sons of Anarchy, which I mentioned when we were talking about her the other week. She She's a real product of the 70s, though. You yeah. Know? And unfortunately, she's a product of that sexism that was going on at the time. And the reason I say that is because she's basically known for one thing. She had big uh, two things. Yeah, two things. that's it. Like, you know, she gets exploited for that in almost all of her movies and she gets exploited for it here. You mentioned Roger Moore, too. Hang on, um, hang on. I want to go back to Adrian Barbeau for a minute. Sure, sure. So you, you talked off the top about the idea of the, the way that women are treated and depicted in this movie, uh, you know, being not positive. And you're right. But I also felt that the... Um, the Adrian Barbeau and the other woman who, you know, obviously is not someone as famous, so we don't know who she is without looking her up. So you have the the concept is that you've got these two beautiful women who have these very tight outfits and very large breasts, and they're going to drive the fastest, sleekest car to try and win this race, knowing that when they get pulled over, the expectation is that the cops are going to be men and that if they unzip their shirts a little bit and they, they show a little skin, the cops are more likely to let them off either with a warning or definitely not confiscate car and any of that stuff. And so what they can continue on with their race. They can basically use their sex appeal as, as a tool in their arsenal to get them out of trouble, to try and win this race and win this money. And I think that despite what you may feel about the, the objectification of women in the movie in general, I think these characters almost bring a certain amount of empowerment to it where the, the way the characters are depicted anyway, is that these women are knowingly doing this to gain an advantage over the men that they're going to be pitted against. You know, the, their adversaries are these police, male police officers, and they figured out that men are stupid. And if you show some boobs, men are less likely to, you know, give you a hard time about it. And and that's exactly what you see in this movie. They get pulled over a couple of times. They unzip their their tops uh, to produce IDs that they keep in their bras and their driver's licenses and such, and and they get away with it. So yes. From a from a, a, a the audience watching this movie, there's a lot of boobs here. There's a lot of cleavage in this, as there are in in many mo- movies in the '80s. It's just you know par for the course for mm-hmm. the '80s, which again doesn't excuse it. But I felt that these characters, at least the the way that characters are depicted, is they have chosen to do this and exploit themselves in a way that they are empowered to gain from their sex appeal. So. Despite some of the other issues with the movie, I I actually didn't have from a more perspective today's lens. I didn't have a problem with them doing this because I felt they they were doing this because they chose to do it. So the, for the, right or for wrong, that that was my takeaway from them. The other girl that you mentioned, you didn't know who she was. Tara Buckman 
was her name. Sure. You're right. She didn't do a whole lot other than that. Um, and speaking of not doing a whole lot uh, other than this, Roger Moore, um, he was the best Bond. But the thing was, well, he was in my mind anyway. You know, I like in this movie, he plays a guy that thinks he's Roger Moore. He's not. Yeah, Roger I thought that was a clever way. <laughs> that was pretty play. cool. Yeah. But other than James Bond, he didn't do a whole lot. You know, I mean, I guess he was in The Saint back in the, the 60s on TV. Wasn't but, he an I Spy, the TV show? No, that no, a- that was Robert Culp. That was oh, Robert okay. Culp and Bill Cosby. Um, oh, no, The Saint, you're right. Yeah, sorry, you said it. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, So, but but I think everyone remembers him as Bond. You know, that's of course. pretty of course. much all. That, but in this movie, he plays into all those sexist sort of themes again. Like, every time you see him, he's got a different girl in his arm and... I, I did like kind of how they poke fun of his Bond character um, yeah. at the end when he gets launched into the ocean from the ejection yeah. seat. I thought it was yeah. pretty cool. Um, one other guy I wanted to mention. So later in the movie, remember when they all get into that big rumble with the, with the, the biker Oh, with gang? the bikers? Yeah. And oh, by the way, I learned when I was watching Sons of Anarchy that the proper, the proper term isn't biker gang. I used to always use that, that term. It's MC. It's short for motorcycle club. Sure. Anyway, um, so that scene with the big rumble, there's this bald biker and like he's he cuts Burt Convy's tie. And then in the fight scene, he asked Burt Reynolds to punch him. He's like, he's like, punch me on the other side of of my face. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So I was watching this movie and I swore that that was Pat Roach. So Pat Roach is a Hollywood stuntman. Derek. You probably know him best from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Remember that I was bald say, mechanic? I, I don't know his name, but that yeah. was definitely the guy. He appeared in Raiders, Temple of Doom, and Last Crusade, and each yeah. time he gets a crap beat out of him. And I'm like, I know that that's Pat Roach, so I looked it up, but it's not Pat Roach, believe it oh, or not. Oh, it's not. I was no, sure it was. I was sure I didn't look it, it up. Was. I was just sure. I'm like, oh, I that's positive. That it's a bit actor named Robert Tessier, and he was a stuntman as well. But anyway, just that just came to my mind. So, um... I should also mention Seymour's mom looked really familiar to me. And I was like, I can't put my figure on who she is. Her name was Molly Pecan. She was in Fiddler on the Roof. And I was like, no, that's not where I saw her. And I kept thinking about it. She was in the facts of life that I recognized her from. She played Natalie's grandma, Mona. But anyway, so back to the movie. So the thing is, if you remember back to the beginning of the film, they're all trying to figure out ways to like get an edge you know, in this race. So they're coming yeah. up with vehicles they're going to drive in, you know. And a lot of the ways that people got across the country in this film were based on real-life examples from the cannibal race that Brock Yates had created. And Brock Yates actually served as a writer on this movie itself. Um, probably important. Like, he created the race, so I guess he should write the movie, right? Um, I like the scene when Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise are talking about different vehicles. And Dom DeLuise is like, maybe we could get a, bra- a black Trans Am. Yeah. And Burt Reynolds yeah, like, nah, done. it's been done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Um, so the scene in the back of the ambulance, remember when Dom DeLuise has that cast on his finger? And he's uh, like, yes. It, it, it yes. only hurts when I point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> the guy that's talking to them, the ambulance attendant, that's the director. That's how Oh, yeah, I read that. Yeah, it's yeah. a little bit cameo. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting because he has a line and he says, this thing goes through traffic like shot through a gun. And you can tell it's dubbed because his lips say, this thing goes through traffic like through a goose. And then I'm watching this. I'm thinking, did I get like an edited 
you know, an edited for TV version on this DVD. But then in almost like the next scene, Mel Tillis and Terry Bradshaw drive their car into a swimming pool and Mel Tillis says, so I, 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 that, I thought that was weird why that one line was like dubbed over. But uh, speaking know. of Mel Tillis too, by the way, another guy from the cast, I always found it very interesting. I don't know much about this, but he had a really, really bad stutter, obviously. Yeah, I figured that that had to be real because I thought oh, in yeah. a couple of scenes, I'm like, this seems a little no, more excessive he, he really than did. it needs to be. I thought he must. Re- it must be a real thing. Yeah. And he obviously must have a relationship with the people who are making this movie because I I didn't feel that that was a necessary character quirk for the character he was playing. So I'm like, the only reason they would have left this in here, because I mean, you certainly wouldn't put it in intentionally if he didn't stutter. So Mm -hmm. I thought that just must be the way this guy is. And they must just know him. Like I never, I had no idea who he was, but so, so the thing with him that was, he had a stutter in real life and and that was the way he talked, but he was a country singer. And when he would sing, he didn't have a stutter. It was the weirdest thing. I don't like I say. I don't know. That's that's it. true. I, I think we yeah. talked about that on a previous podcast way back. That's that's a thing. Your brain yeah. uh, accesses music from a different part than speech, and that's one. So that's cool. a big part of speech therapy. When people who are stutterers, that's one of the things they tell them is you you try to sing what you want to say. And I've read a couple of books, fiction and nonfiction, where characters do that. It's it's a very uh, it's a very popular way to try and overcome a stutter. Interesting, uh, Mr. Foyt. That guy. The, the actor's name was George Firth. He did quite a bit of, like, bit parts around this time. I remember he was in Blazing Saddles. He was in Young Doctors in Love. And he was in Dr. Detroit. Remember we've talked about that? He was I've never in, seen it, but I am familiar with the movie. I thought you, you remember you a couple episodes ago you were singing the song with me. Oh, I know the song. I know the movie. I just, I, I've never seen it. Oh, you never. Oh, my God. Well, he was he was in that movie. He was he was um, Scridlow's dad. I remember he was, like, the dean of the college. But, um... One of the opening scenes, he's in it. He's in that meeting with Farrah Fawcett, and, and and he looks around the room and he sees there's quite a few people there, and he's like, "Well, this is a, t-. I mean, it's a pretty good turnout." <laughs> yeah. Jeez, my God. So one thing I wanted to mention about this movie too, I've mentioned before, the typical Hollywood formula. You know, most Hollywood scripts are like boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. You know, in other words, the movie opens up, characters are introduced, everything goes to crap in the second act, and then everything works out in the end. Typical Hollywood movie, you know. But just like in Smokey and the Bandit in this movie, does not adhere to that formula in any way. Like, it's just a chase, <laughs> like a race across the country. Although, they, you can tell that they kind of got near the end of the movie and they were like, well, we got to have some kind of a climax so that's when they yeah. had the big fight with the with the biker gang. Yeah. Or the yeah, MC. Absolutely. The MC. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, any favorite scene? So you said you really enjoyed it. What was what would you say so, your favorite scene? One of the things that I I remembered from my very young initial viewing was that they had this crazy doctor. Like that it was he had the cross eyes and he was like this older, creepy, like very large doctor. Yeah. And again, I sort of remember the music. Yes. It was like he came on and you thought he was like right out of a horror movie. And so I remembered the physical comedy that came with that character. But I didn't realize how much dialogue and humor came out of that part of it when he like. So when they first meet him and uh, Burt Reynolds keeps saying, never tell me where you found him. I don't want to know. Like that was just became a running gag. Yeah. But when they met the doctor and he's like, he's holding out his finger and he's like, 
I'm a proctologist. And he's like wiping his finger all over Burt Reynolds' face. And then a couple of points through the movie, he's like holding out his, like when Fawcett comes in and he's like, do you want me to do an exam? And he's like holding out his f- finger. It's like just the, the, the humor that came from just a few lines and a couple of like crazy looks from this guy who was already funny to look at in this situation. I, I found a lot more humor in those scenes than I expected to because I didn't remember any of the jokes because I didn't get any of the jokes when I was younger watching it for the first time. So just the scenes with with Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise and the doctor killed me. Like I just I, I laughed so much now that I'm thinking about the movie more and more. I'm laughing more and more. That doctor, I think my favorite part with him was when they get, they get pulled over by the cops and the police officer's like, we got to talk to the doctor. <laughs> and then they open up the, the, the van or they open up the side of the ambulance and they see Fiera Fawcett and she's drugged. <laughs> she's laying there. And then the doctor comes in and he, and he says, she's in tremendous pain. It's causing her to make certain delirious tremiums. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if he was supposed to flub that line. I just, the way it just tails off or I don't know if he yeah. forgot his line or if they just left it in I don't know but that made me laugh like I really laughed at that and then, or the scene then, where he's got to give her the needle and they're like yeah. oh yeah it's perfectly fine and he's like you give it to yourself all the time and he's like yeah and they're like go ahead and you can see he's like no and then he gives himself the needle just that whole scene just oh my god I laugh so much and then they, when they get away from the cops and then they're like, oh, she did really good. She, you know, she helped get us out of this. And the doctor says, yeah, she should have her picture on the cover of the American Medical Journal. And then he just passes out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. So um, I would say, hands down, my favorite, my favorite scene in the whole movie is at the beginning when all the racers are getting ready for the big race. It's like the night before the race and they're all in the bar. <laughs> and Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. They're dressed as the priests. Oh yeah, <laughs> so funny. This is—I don't even think I can get through this. With this yeah, I know where you're going. And, and they're talking, and but they're not talking like priests. And there's a guy at the bar, and he just keeps reacting to the things yeah. that they say. Yeah, I was laughing so hard. My wife—that's what made her get up and leave. She's like, oh. like this movie is dumb. I, she goes, I kiss. I was making the couch shake. I was laughing so much. So they're, they're swearing, they're drinking, and this guy at the bar just keeps reacting to it all. And it just makes yeah. me laugh more and more. Dean Martin at one point sees the two girls in the spandex outfits, and he, he says to Sammy Davis Jr., he's like, man, if we were Methodists, we'd have a real shot at getting laid. <laughs> and the guy at the bar just like he does a spit take. Yeah, he's, oh. he snaps his head around. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my left. god. And then that was good. Sammy Davis Jr. then gets on the phone and calls Jimmy the Greek and starts talking about putting money down on a bet. And then that's when the guy does the spit take. <laughs> so that's I think one of the things that made me laugh the most. It's not the drinking or the profanity or the sex that offends this guy the most. No, it's the gambling. The, the, the fact that you know you know these priests you know they, they can they can swear they can drink they can ogle women you know that's all okay but heaven forbid a priest should gamble you know it's, yeah. I don't, that scene that really really made me laugh well and i liked um later on there's the scene where uh burt reynolds is trying to get back at the at dean martin and sammy davis and he and he goes to the police officer and he says there are these two guys dressed as priests and they're flashers 
And it's like, I don't know, just the concept of ratting them out as not being priests, but saying that they're flashers. And it's just, I just thought that that was funny. And then of course they later on when there's the confrontation and that's where they have that, that really inappropriate dialogue where, uh, you know, just before the fight where they're all backed up and, uh, and they start talking about, it and he's like, you said, told them we were flashers and they like call them out on it. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. It's just these like little throwaway pieces that in the context of the movie are really funny. That was a funny scene because, mm-hmm. um, when they, when Sammy Davis Jr. and D Martin pull them over to bless the car, Sammy Davis is letting the air out of their tires. Yeah. Right. And then they get done and he's like, why don't you take that piece of back to the junkyard? <laughs> and they realize yeah. that they're not priests. Yeah. And Burt Reynolds says, they're not fathers, they're mothers. And yeah. then he slaps Dom DeLuise. <laughs> and then <laughs> and that's where they go to the cop, like you mentioned. And I love it because um, Burt Reynolds says to the guy, do you take your law and order seriously in this town? And he's, he's like a hit cop, like in this yeah. southern town. And there's this big banner across the road. It says, Sean Killacommy O'Hanlon. <laughs> and then, and then like you said, um, Burt Reynolds tells him that they're flashers. So the cop pulls him over. <laughs> the first thing he says to Sammy Davis Jr., he's like, hey, shorty, where'd you get all that jewelry? Like to imply that he stole it. <laughs> I don't know. Jesus, I tell you. You mentioned also Jamie Farr is the chic. When he goes to that restaurant, it just dates the whole movie so much in in a couple of ways. First of all, I don't know if you noticed, but when when he pulls up, the girl says, she goes, that's the first time I've ever taken an order by a mobile phone. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, because, you know, she's a female, she has to show her cleavage. And then Jamie Farr recalls his order to her and he's like, okay, we have six lamb burgers, six shish kebabs. And then he looks at her cleavage and he goes, and two milk. And I'm like, oh my God, like, again, this whole movie, I tell you. And then he says to her, "Um, do you ever consider joining a harem? And then he just gives her a big wad of bills. He's like, here, get a physical. (laughs) The the whole thing is just so sexist, I tell you. And then um, when the the girls, like you mentioned, Adrian Barbeau and Tara Buckman, every time they get pulled over, they use their sexuality to get out of tickets. And then the one time near the end, they get pulled over and it's a female cop. Yeah. But that's not good enough. You know, this movie's got to push it because it's played by Valerie Preen from Superman. I don't know if you recognized her. She no, I didn't. Miss Tessmacher. Yeah. And so the girls know they're not going to get away with a ticket. But the, the female cop leans in and you can see her cleavage. <laughs> it's just like, oh, my God, this movie just doesn't end. Um, and then Jackie Chan in the one scene where he's in the computerized car and he's watching the porn movie. Oh, yeah. Behind the green door, which is like, this you know, 70s thing. And then, of course, you can't have Jackie Chan in the movie and not show off his martial arts skills. You know, he he took on the whole MC, not the biker gang. Now, I had read it, true or not, I read this in the trivia after the fact that, um, so with Cannibal Run movie, they have the blooper reel during the credits. And apparently Jackie Chan thought that was a great idea. And that's why in so many of his movies after this, when where he's the star, he does outtakes through the credits of his martial arts movies where you see him trying the stunts and, and flubbing them and, and not getting them correct, which I always I always like. Like I've seen a lot of Jackie Chan movies over the years. And that to me is almost always one of the best parts is, mm-hmm. you know, you're getting a blooper reel at the end. And it never I had no idea that 
I didn't know he was in this and I didn't realize that that was the inspiration was his involvement with the cannibal run. So I thought that was a, a nice little uh, oh, connector there. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So if you got to rate this movie out of 10, you seem to enjoy it. What do you give it? Well, hang on before we get there. I yeah. got a couple of quick things I want to run through. Sure. First oh, of yeah. all, the music. One of the things I noticed was as each character had their, their because you've got such a large ensemble, most of the characters have their own music. Um, and so that was another little uh, wink, wink sort of cue to the audience of who who you were going to be following. And I like that with the Roger Moore character, the music they had was like a slight rip off of the yep. James Bond theme music. Yep. So I like that a lot. I thought that was a good little uh, a good little, you know, wink, wink, nod to him. The other thing I want to mention is sort of the elephant in the room with this movie is about the flub at the end of the movie. So the movie's a race. And ultimately, they depict that the uh, the two women in the tight outfits, Adrian Barbeau and and friend, are the winners because they're the ones that get there first and punch the card first, and they win the cannonball run. But that's not correct no, because it's not. the movie doesn't start with everybody starting at exactly the same time on a starting line. the 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 race begins for each contestant as they hit the punch clock, and between each car, there's a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. So. It's not so much first one to punch in. It's the one who has the shortest overall time. That's right. And so when they all arrive together, the person who left the original starting line last would be the one that's completing their time Mm -hmm. in the shortest amount of time. And again, it's a small. I noticed that, too. It's a detail that they just sort of hand wave and say, we're not worried about that. Mm -hmm. If it's a movie about a race. There needs to be a winner and there needs to be a climatic. Everybody comes to it at the same time. And the whole, I mean, the whole gimmick with Dom DeLuise as Captain Chaos, like the joke wouldn't work if you knew that, well, the Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise left 20 minutes later than Adrian Barbeau. Mm. So the fact that she beats him to the punch clock on a foot race doesn't matter. They could walk there as slow as they want and they're still going to have an overall better time than her. So that little detail sort of bugged me a bit, yeah. but given the movie is what it is and the time frame, it is mm-hmm. what it is and that it's a Hal Needham movie and you're just supposed to have fun with it. Yeah. I'm willing to overlook that. They but obviously I that needed, he, I recognize they needed a visual hook, you know, at the yeah. end of the movie to make it more dramatic. And I, I recognize yeah. that as well. That was yeah. A good point. I mean, I, I'm willing yeah. to forgive that, yeah. but I felt that we couldn't talk about the movie and not at least acknowledge that. Right. So back to your original question though. So my overall score on this, yes. I, I think I got to give it between a seven and a half and an eight. Wow. Probably for on just on its face. I like it as an eight because I think it does have a lot of rewatchability, but it does have some issues. The fact that it's a product of its time, some of which uh, you just can't forgive, but some of it you can sort of contextualize it a bit. So for that, I would maybe lean more towards a seven and a half. So I'm sort of right between that seven and a half and an eight, knowing some of the other movies we've done recently that I've given an eight. I think I got to give this one sort of in that same vein. I'm going to give it an eight out of 10. Wow. That's so high. And it's so surprising because usually I love all these old ones and you don't. I, I was surprised actually how, how old and dated it, it felt. I'd probably give it like a three, (laughs) but if it wasn't for, um, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. and some of the scenes, I'm, I'm probably bumping up to about a five. So, but I mean, I, I enjoyed it when I was younger, but I mean, it was it was kind of problematic and overall it was just like, okay. So probably say about a five for me. So Wow. Okay. That's, a little bit uh, different this week. I think it's the first time where yeah. you've recommended a movie, I know. not really cared for it, and I've liked it more than you have. Well, like, I, I mean, it sounds like I liked it a lot more than you yeah, did. So. Yeah. I mean, I enjoyed it and like I laughed at some of the scenes so much. But overall, the movie I thought was, ah, it was just okay, which is 
interesting. I mean, when I nominate these movies, like, like I mean, I watch the same things over and over. I get that. But a lot of these movies I nominate, I haven't seen in, you know, 30 years, you know. So sometimes it's a it's a great nostalgic trip back. And sometimes it's, you know, I go back and go, oh, man, it wasn't as good as I thought. But anyway, on that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. <laughs> All right, I nominated this movie, so it's over to you, my friend. What do you got for me? All right, so my first instinct was, I'll mm-hmm. give you a whole bunch of trivia about Burt Reynolds. Right. Well, we did Smoking the Bandit not too long ago, and I already did that. Oh, yeah, so we did, didn't we? I thought, okay, well, we got Roger Moore. I'll do a bunch of James Bond trivia. Well, we've done James Bond movies. We've done Sean Connery movies. So I'm like, I've already gone down that road, too. So it started limiting my options about how, <laughs> where to go with this trivia. Ultimately, I decided we're going to ask, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions about movie cars okay okay right. now i don't know if you're a quote car guy i know uh, a friend of ours is a huge car guy and if he listens to this podcast he's gonna clean up on this trivia but i'm gonna give you a whole bunch of questions about movie cars okay okay so what i'm gonna do i found this fantastic article when i was doing a little bit of research to set up this trivia mm-hmm. where they called out a whole bunch of movies that either were about the car or had pivotal important scenes in the movies that heavily featured a car and it was a it was like a car magazine that had written this article so they talked about the specific make and model of each of these cars and then they talked about the movie so i'm going to give you the make and model of a car okay and then i'm going to read the description of the movie okay. uh, we'll do this in two phases i'll give you the, the make and model of the car guess the movie right. in many cases i don't think you're going to be able to but if you can't, I will then tell you what the movie is about, and you give me the name of the film. Okay, sounds good. Okay, okay. So, I'm not a big car guy, but I'll do my no, best. No, and I'm not either. And I think I would if it, if I just gave you the cars, you would not do well at all. And I don't think many of us would. Um, but I'll give you the name of the movie, like the description of the movie, and I think that'll help. Okay. Okay. So in no particular order. First question: The car is a 1958 Plymouth Fury. Uh, Christine. Yes. Yes. Book. Okay, good one. Some of these are going to be really easy and really obvious. This one is a gimme. A 1981 DeLorean DMC-12. Uh, it's Back to the Future. It is Back to the Future. Look at this. See, I don't even have to read what the movies are about. Okay. A 1961 Ferrari 250 GT. Mm. I'm going to say Risky Business. No. Mm. But... That uh, you got two chances on these. So okay. this is the description of this movie. A high school wise guy is determined to have a day off from school, despite what oh. the principal thinks of that. That was um, uh, Ferris Bueller's day off. Yes, yeah. Ferris Bueller's yeah. day off. Yeah, you killed the car. Yeah. Yeah. All right. A 1963 Volkswagen Beetle. I'll say Herbie the Love Bug. Yes, the Love Bug from Ooh. 1968. I would have accepted any of the Herbie the Love Bug movies because nice. I know they did a whole bunch of them. All right. There's another easy one for you. Austin Martin, DB5. I will go with James Bond. Can you be more specific, please? Um, For your eyes only? Nope. Oh. Uh, I'll read you the description, which should give it away okay. right away. Yep. While investigating a gold magnate smuggling, a spy uncovers a plot to contaminate the Fort Knox Gold Reserve. Uh, Goldfinger. Yes, Goldfinger. All right. Okay, next car on the list. 1968 Ford Mustang GT Fastback. 
Ooh, um, I don't know. All right, the movie is about an all guts, no glory San Francisco cop becomes determined to find the underworld kingpin that killed the witness in his protection. Oh, is it a French Connection? It is not French Connection. No. Any other guesses? Um, San Francisco cop, movie about a car. Don't know. Famous car chase. No. Bullet with Steve McQueen. But what what year was the car? 1968 Ford Mustang GT oh, Mustang. I thought you said a 1961 Mustang. I don't know why. Okay. Never mind. Not that All right. Matters. Okay. All right. A Porsche 928. Was that risky business? That was risky yes. business. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Nice. All right. Are these next two, super right over the plate, easy ones for okay. you. These are the last two. 1974 Dodge Monaco. Oh, that's the Blues Brothers. That is the Blues Brothers. Woo! Yes. Cop car, cop engine. Yep. Cop All shocks. Right. Yep. Before All a catalytic converter so it runs good on regular gas. Yep. All right. Last one. Super easy one for you here. 1977 Pontiac Firebird Trans Am. Oh, it's Smokey and the Bandit. Smokey and the Bandit. You got it, buddy. And I figured I had to end with Smokey. That was sort of our, our kind of come full circle. Yeah, you know, exactly. that's perfect. Yeah. So right. again, not, I'm not a car guy, but and, and I know you're not really a car guy, but you did pretty well. But again, like the, if I say DeLorean, 99% of the people yeah. are going to know that's back. Yeah. Future. So I knew some of these questions were going to be pretty easy. So anyway, if, and if nice. for people who are car guys or girls, maybe they got it from the car clue. And if so, yeah. good for you. Good for them. Okay. So next week, Eric, um, it's your turn to nominate a movie. Now we try to relate our films. So this week I went obviously with Cannibal Run. So what have you got for us next week? Well, I figure Cannibal Run is a movie about a, a, a race, like a, a car chase across, a, you know, vast countryside. So I thought, I know the perfect modern movie that's essentially a two-hour car chase. It's perfect. We're going to do Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> and then I thought, crap, we already did that one. So we did do that one. Yeah, you're right. we did. Yes. So as much as that would have been the perfect go-to from mm. this movie. Right. I was like, damn it, that one's already been done. And then I thought, well, you know, I'll look for a movie that maybe stars some of the same cast members. But honestly, most of the cast in this did their best work in the 70s. And mm -hmm. I try to pick my movies Newer. substantially yeah. later, into the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s at least. Right. And honestly, most of the people in this were way past their prime or dead by the time, you know, mm -hmm. in the late 90s, early 2000s. So. Right. I really sort of had my hands tied with this one. So I'm going to go a slight, again, this is a, a little leap of logic to get where we're going here. Okay. So, um, so I'm going to get you to watch the movie Unstoppable from 2010. It's by my one of my favorite directors, Tony Scott. And oh, this is a movie. This. I don't I've know mentioned this movie, this movie yeah. a few times. So this movie is about a runaway train and the uh, the conductors in a subsequent train that basically try and catch the runaway train. So it is essentially about two trains racing after each other on a time clock. They've got to get there. Climatic ending. Again, it's a little bit of a leap to connect these two movies, but I think it's this one's about, you know, it's the speed, it's the chase, it's all the elements that go with it. So that's that's how we're very loosely connecting these movies. Uh, this was Tony Scott's last film before he uh, unfortunately took his own life due to depression. Uh, it stars Denzel Washington and Chris Pine. Chris Pine, of course, uh, you may or may not remember, is the new Captain Kirk in the reboot of Star Trek. Oh, yeah, we watched uh, that one. 
Yeah, it also stars uh, Rosario Dawson and uh, a few other people that you're going to go, oh, I totally know that guy. It's got a lot of that guys in here. And it's just, it's a fun movie. I really enjoy this movie. Uh, It didn't score exceptionally well on the IMDb, but, uh, you know, you think, how's a movie about a runaway train all that exciting? I've probably seen this movie 10 times, and let me tell you, it comes on TV. I'm watching it 11th time. I really enjoy this one. I don't know if you're going to like it or not, but you should have no problem finding it. It's relatively new, unstoppable from 2010. Tony Scott will come back next week and uh, we'll give it a review. Definitely. It won't be as hard to find as the Cannibal Run. That's no, for no sure. not at all. Do <laughs> no not have any it. problems finding this film. All right, and I was so, thinking about it. If, yeah. if my math's correct, this is going to be our third Tony Scott. We did Man on Fire. Yes. And we did True Romance. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So this will be, be our one. third one. And uh, I'm sure we'll do Beverly Hills Cop 2 at some point, maybe Top Gun at some point. Tony Scott's got a lot of great credits to his name. I'm sure this won't be our last Tony Scott film. So next week we'll come back. We'll do our third Tony Scott film. We'll review Un- Unstoppable. Sounds good. I don't know who, if we've done any other directors three times. Maybe Spielberg. I don't know. We'll There's a few. Back. There's yeah. a few that we've, we've hit a couple of times. Um, but yeah. I'm doing my part. We're going to we're going to watch uh, we're going to watch another right. a Tony Scott one. Like I say I've never seen it. So we'll come back next week we'll do Unstoppable and until then this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs>for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.